Welcome to the Horror Babble Originals podcast. In the Tomb of the White Baron by Tamlin Dipper Part 1 There are skies and skies. There are skies that cradle a man in light blue arms and mop the fevered mind with little fluffy clouds. Then there are skies that hang heavy with rain and lightning, threatening the doom of man in tympanic assault. But that was a sky of low grey, cold grey indifference. It hung overhead and stretched from horizon to horizon in steel uniformity, like the palm of a gigantic grey hand, pressing down to crush us like ants. "'We're lost, you know,' said Mikhail Kavlogin, staring moodily into the distance. In the leaden light his nose looked even more waxy than normal. I wanted to punch it, even more than usual. We were not entirely lost. I know we had to be somewhere west of Angarsk, definitely west of Irkutsk. Even if the land here looks abominably similar, endless steppe and mountain and scrubby forests mile after mile— Day after day. Cold water, sour mare's milk, grass stains and grass smells, and no luck in our mission to find the tomb of the great Khan. I'd have given up weeks ago, but for two things. First, wanting to prove Kavlogin wrong. Second, I liked my head where it was. If I disobeyed the orders of our commander, our Buryat horsemen would execute me without blinking. Such was their reverence for Baron Nikolai von Ungern Sternberg. I met Ungern Sternberg for the first time in late 1919. The train I was on pulled into a one-horse stop on the railway to Manchuria. I was wearing the uniform jacket of a captain in the Royal Engineers, and the trousers of a private in the Durham Light Infantry. I had a dwindling supply of mixed banknotes, bloody knuckles, and absolutely no thought of a plan for my future beyond the next bowl of soup and a smoke. Twenty years old, and bloody terrified, scared of the chaos, deserted my post, and unsure how my luck had held this far and this well in the madness of the Russian Civil War. His Royal Highness King George V and his government had seen fit to send me to die in Arkhangelsk, and by various methods I had improved upon this plan. I had made my own way south and east in the company of forces that could charitably be called loyal white forces— but more accurately described as bandits. I finally boarded this train, clutching a locked leather case which I told inquiring officers contained diplomatic messages to the commander of white forces in the east. Mostly I kept dry socks in it. I once had an uncle who smelled of gin, who said anyone could make their fortune in China, and since I knew I had more brains than him, I assumed I'd make my way and land on my feet eventually. But the more I travelled, the more desperate the situation got, not just for me, but for everyone I met. We were a flotsam of soldiers, servants, opticians, clerks and chancers, tumbling east, trying and often failing to escape the Reds behind us. In this way, when we rolled into the town and I heard the train crew disembarking to bully the villagers for fuel, I also jumped down next to the track and sidled into the darkness to see what I could pick up. The villagers must have been used to armed men, 
because not a single face appeared at a window or doorway to inquire what was happening. Despite the obvious excitement, harsh words were barked, and I could see the silhouettes of men running to obey at gunpoint. I was testing the door on an outhouse to see if any animals within were worth lifting into my sack when I heard the first rifle shots, irregular, unenthusiastic, rattling coughs. Resistance to the train crew? Shots snapped out of the train, to be sure. Czech Legion men firing smartly from sandbag positions. Very little flash. The other side of the tracks, then. I shoved my sack in my jacket and shouldered my own rifle in anticipation. A figure ran around the corner carrying a gun, and I shot him. Such meetings are always tense, and rather I panic first than him. I'm still alive, at least for now, so I've no regrets. I didn't stop to check his uniform. Not that uniforms were definitive at that point. Shapeless, lice-crawling. I dropped him. More shouts, more shots exchanged. The tempo increasing. Someone was assaulting the train. In the dark, they would be able to flank the position. I had to decide whether to stay and fight or withdraw. I knew I should withdraw, but there was nowhere to withdraw to on foot. I couldn't even be sure which way was east, other than by following the rails. My left hand was shaking, like it does when I know I could die, and I realised I was going to fight. Forward, then, up next to the big bulk of the engine, pale eyes of the driver blinking at me past the iron plates. I put two rounds into the darkness with the fast lever action, to show willing, and tried to look intelligent. A round spanked off the metal to my left, but they were probably just aiming at the locomotive itself. A figure in a shapeless coat came up alongside the squat wooden house down the slope from us. Train crew? It waved a pistol in encouragement at someone behind him. An officer. I fired twice more, giving him a limp, and he ran away into cover. Still further down the train I could hear bugles and grenades. The attacking force were likely Bolshevik Reds, trying to put pressure on the line which was mainly operated by the Whites, and well supplied, judging by the bulk of activity. Not mere bandits looking for a quick prize, more than the train guards could handle. I dithered, hoping the train crew would raise steam, and I could get out by climbing onto the engine, but for whatever reason I did not hear the telltale sounds of coal slinging. I saw shapes in the dark, that I thought might be a machine gun setting up. I put shots into the area. The movement stopped. I was peering into the night, trying to see what I had achieved, when the industrial chug of the gun sprang to life. I caught a splash of lead to my temple, and in the searing heat of that pain it must have rattled my brains. The next thing I knew I was leaping down the bank, angry, cursing and running into the oncoming attack. A red stopped surprised, despite his fixed bayonet. So I roared at him at the top of my lungs, and he simply ran away. I fired as I ran and chased him. One set of eels running away was joined by two more, then three. A cavalryman wheeled his horse and fired a carbine, but missed, and I plugged him in return. Shouts converging on me. I ducked behind a tree and reloaded, and the action brought me round. I was alone out here. I didn't know where the train even was, and I was surrounded by hostile reds. I owe my life to giving up at that moment. I knew I was all in, hungry, exhausted, 
I had made a mistake, and was surely going to pay for it. Well, I might as well die a hero, provided no one would ever tell my mother. She'd never believe them. So I worked the action and stood up straight. One shot, three. Some men ducked, some men fell. Then finally a fellow braver than me was charging with a fixed bayonet, screaming, Ah! I nearly fell onto the point of that bayonet. With relief it was all over. Then, sudden as a dragonfly, a blur of horsemen hoofed past me and cleaved the fellow's head above his ear, and he fell. I just stood stupidly. Cavalry were on all sides, a tide, sweeping the reds back, and trampling prone men in the mud, which is how von Unger and Sternberg found me. He introduced himself in clipped Russian as commander of the Asiatic Cavalry Division, and wasn't it a coincidence that they had caught up with the reds just in time to see them off with some well-timed butchery? Fortunately, I had the presence of mind to lie. Captain George Fotheringay. I named myself after my hated Latin teacher, British Special Service, carrying diplomatic messages for white forces from London. Von Ungern was pleased to lend me a horse, and we rode off, in my case, very badly. I couldn't very well refuse, and I had lost confidence in the train for the moment. Long story short, I was taken to the von Ungern's camp, some days travel away. To him I made grandiose promises of British support which would follow, and were worth fly-spit. The meeting was in a stinking tent where we ate plov and drank wine by the light of oil lamps. There I was informed that the British authorities were negotiating to extract the Czech Legion and some others out of Vladivostok, if I wanted to go that way. However, since I was only slightly more keen to meet Lord Kitchener than Leon Trotsky, I decided to throw in with these white brigands on my own terms. I saw your gallant action and admire your work. I'd rather stay here and fight if it's all the same to you, if you can use a British officer. The Baron took my oath, and we drank several bottles. But far from relaxing, the drink only seemed to make him angrier. His eyes burned in the lamplight, and by the third bottle he was caressing his sword and raving about the true gods and how the Jews and cowards had turned away from some sort of older religion of gods in the earth and in the sky. He had some fixation on the Mongols and Buryat peoples as the descendants of warrior slaves to a race of people who lived or live in Tibet in some mystic valley or plateau. He called them the Men of Leng, and apparently they put Homer and the Latins and Solomon to shame in matters of magic and conjuration. He seemed to think he had seen an old wizard of theirs conjure up beings out of the earth. The Baron said that if he could master the same, he could retake Moscow at the head of a new Mongol army, with fire-throwing artillery and dogs made of knives and shadow. None of it made any damn sense, but he was a maniac and a murderer, so... I nodded along. I was unpleasantly drunk and heavy-headed. I think we may have even exchanged blows in some sort of grotesquely intimate yet joyless wrestling match before I passed out. Nevertheless, when I woke bruised in the morning, I was clutching a new sword, and the quivering wax nose of Mikhail Kovlogin fluttered above me, informing me he was my sergeant. I was to head up a reconnaissance unit of horse soldiers— I was a captain in the Asiatic Cavalry Division.
Part 2 I did not see the Baron for some months, during which time I rode with a mix of Russians, Cossacks, and Buryats up and over hundreds of miles. During all that time I did not suspect the Baron of the meanest intelligence or ambition, and simply focused on playing the part of a tough Englishman. But that was all to change when von Ungern Sternberg broke with his general Semyonov, and we rode on the Mongolian capital to liberate it in the name of the Bogd Khan, the Bogd Khan being some local ruler who trusted the Baron more than I did. I had nothing better to do, so I went along. I rode, and I rode, over more leagues of grass, and up over mountain passes, under the boot heel of an endless sky. When not riding, I dreamed of cake and ale. My Russian improved, but I never grasped the subtleties of the language of our Buryats. In fact, I later formed the opinion that the Baron's closest elite were neither Buryat, nor Tartar, nor Cossacks, but some sacred band or ancestral devil cult drawing on many bloodlines. They kept their mouths shut tight during the day, and kept to themselves round their own fires at night. They spoke a dialect of strange gurgling clicks I've never heard spoken elsewhere, and knew no songs. Their only passions were killing, and various icons or amulets they hung around their bodies. We European troopers assumed the amulets were supposed to have life-saving qualities, the way saints' relics were supposed to. Their faces were not unpleasant, but were as empty and uncaring as the sky over the steppe. I did take to horses, however. There is as much difference between a Lancashire brewery nag and these tough little ponies as between night and day, and on the whole I preferred my pony to any man I met. He was loyal, enduring, and never complained, and though I led him into danger, he never cursed me or ran out. I even respected the ponies of our enemies— although I rarely respected the men on them. I digress. My candle wavers, and I must press on before it dies. We attacked Urga, the capital of Mongolia, as we always did, with shouts and cries of triumph. A disciplined enemy, well prepared, would have cut us down in swivelling machine-gun fire. But although the garrison had machine-guns, they had no discipline. We were as wolves among sheep. We killed more with the sabre than the rifle, although I was by now accustomed to using my Winchester repeater from the saddle. Muddy alleyways, dirty plaster, rotting wooden gambrels and grimacing faces. Our glorious victory smelled of blood, soot, and open sewers. I thought myself lost at one point, but Kavlogin, who stayed close by me out of cowardice more than loyalty, cried out as he saw the baron. His closest riders flashed past at the gallop. We caught up and fell in with them as we made our way among the monasteries. Ogre was as much monastery as city by this point, heaving with zealots like a blanket does with lice. Yet we did not head directly for the richer-looking buildings as I expected. Instead, we found our way to a sordid side street, and a complex slumped like a sow, with ancient timbers and blurred carvings surrounding a stone fane with dented brass doors. Von Ungern saw us and licked his lips with frustration. He clearly did not want us there, but was compelled by some great urgency to press on without discussion. Whether through drink or bloodlust, there was an absolute fire in his eyes and blood on his blade, 
as we ducked inside. Greasy-looking young acolytes dashed towards us by the light of oil lamps, and the nature of our visit was made clear as they were slashed by savage passing cuts, losing fingers and arms, and collapsing in defeat. Through a maze of corridors we went, turning back on ourselves, and it felt as if we descended underground before we came to a room for worship and prayer. A wizened head priest sat there on a faded vermilion cushion, wearing a white robe, and strung with gold chains and ornaments. He glowed like a carbuncle in the jaundiced candlelight, a thick incense that smelled of sweet wine and copper and bitter herbs hung in the air. The incense instantly made my head swim when combined with the unwholesome fetter of unwashed flesh. But for all his years this head priest seemed unperturbed by von Ungern, almost as if he recognised him from some earlier acquaintance. The baron stalked forward, a predator closing on a baby, but the old man still didn't flinch, and addressed him in the clicking, gurgling language. Von Ungern responded fluently, spitting some sort of triumphal ultimatum, but the old sage barely blinked. I would have been impressed by his stiff upper lip, but for the degraded decadence of the man and his quarters. These had clearly seen better days, with gold leaf flaking from every surface, and red lacquer cracked with age, exposing the ancient wood and stone beneath. Great bas-reliefs, friezes, and filet statues were everywhere. At first glance, these looked like typical Oriental temple demons. You know the sort of thing. Gouging tongues, twisting bodies, grinding men between mountains. But the artworks were diverting in their way, since I could not follow the discourse of the two main figures in the room. As my attention wandered, I noticed peculiarities. These were not demons in the usual fashion, with fangs and elaborate hats. The demons here tormented men in the guise of winged creatures, with the heads of fish and cuttlefish monstrosities. I thought I might be drugged or hallucinating. I wondered if there was opium in the incense. Strange that a steppe people should find the sea frightening since few would have seen it. Perhaps it was just something alien, and that perturbed them. But the torment seemed more varied than other temples we had invaded, more imaginative and drawn in delighted detail. The hunched, squid-faced ones rode on the backs of giant golden worms and blasted horse warriors with multicoloured fire. Fish and frog-headed demons met with mandarin officials on the shores of the sea, seemingly in conclave and discussion. One played a lute for a party of concubines. I realised that the baron was striking and burning the old priest, while his troopers hung back in awed fascination, apparently seeking some secret from him. His rage grew, and as it did, his grasp on the clicking language seemed to escape him. He raved about being the new Sansu, and how he would follow the great Khan's footsteps to Leng. He had read of something called the Narcotic Manuscripts, and seen Rasputin's book from the desert. The Baron shouted that he would not be denied by a deathless occult eunuch. Minutes became hours, and the sordid lunacy continued. The old man's stoic defiance became screams. I had to sit, and slumped against a pillar. Kavlogin looked even worse than I felt, and threw up behind a curtain. 
I closed my eyes, but could still hear the horrendous, wet, rhythmic music of the abuse. Even von Ungern began to flag, his inquiring voice becoming hoarse and shrill. Blood spattered some of the freezes, and made the eyes of the demons look alive. They gazed down with approving stares at the monstrous tableau. As my head swirled with migraine-like discomfort, I thought I even saw the smoke drifting into shapes whispered from the mouth of the old man, a shape of fumes and starlight taking form behind the baron, who leaned in close to catch the whispered imprecation. In my fuzzy mind, I swear it took firmer lines, the lights within the cloud pulsing, and the distant sound of flutes piping a crescendo. The cloud formed talons and began reaching out for the baron's back, as if it could shred him with those coalescing daggers. I could not move, but stirred in fascination as a demon assassin seemed to congeal in my fevered imagination. I could not look away, and my blood rose and hammered in my veins, my body reacting to the peril, even though my wits deserted me. The hideous scene collapsed at last, when Kavlogin managed to raise a shriek, thin at first, rising to a desperate animal wail. The baron turned, raising his sword and some sort of talisman in his offhand. But I was fixed on those lights in the cloud. I felt I was falling into them, like dropping down a well, and I passed out. When I awoke, we were outside the temple some hours later, as I'd passed away in a dead faint and had to be carried out. Strange to tell, under the soot stains from the burning buildings, I discovered I was cross-hatched in fine cuts, even beneath my clothes. The Baron and Kavlogin bore similar marks on their exposed flesh. The Baron was triumphantly clutching some ornate scroll rollers and attempting to decipher them in the light of the fire, even while shots and screams of brutality continued around us. Insensible, I was carried away to our new headquarters for treatment by a frightened Chinese doctor. But before I could fully recover, and without an opportunity to cross-examine von Ungern about the events, he gave me brusque orders to ride out to a reference point penciled onto an old military map. The ground was northwest of our position, just on the border with Transbaikal. I was to take four of the Baron's most loyal troopers and spare horses, and ride with all haste to reconnoitre the area. Conspiratorially, the Baron informed me that we had intelligence concerning the whereabouts of the tomb of Genghis Khan, supposedly holding enough treasure to buy a nation, and make us wealthy beyond our dreams. Although I could see he was a poor dissembler, that he was not telling the whole tale of what he learned from torturing the old man, nor did he betray any hint of what had terminated his inquiry. We made preparations and rode out within hours. I decided to take of Logan partly out of honest gratitude for his warning scream, but also because I still hated him. I ordered him along because I think I knew a doom awaited us. The desolation and stench of Urga fell behind us as we rode for the clean step. Part 3 There are skies and skies. There are the rain-pregnant skies of Lancashire, kissing moisture into the rich black earth in late spring, 
skies that whisper the green grass up from its slumber to feed hungry sheep, and there are skies that stare at a patrol of horse soldiers from on high, skies that have seen every murder by day or by night, and know every secret. We rode for days without incident, until one day in the distance our companions raised an alarm, calling, Red Horse. We immediately wheeled to ride for cover. Bolshevik cavalry, on identical ponies to ours. Conical felt hats instead of fur. Bolt-action rifles, not repeaters like ours. More numerous than us, though, and highly likely part of a larger formation sweeping the area. Possibly a cavalry division nosing towards Urga. Possibly just sweeping for white bandits in general. Not our mission in any case. We rode hard to escape them. The gods laughed. We outpaced the bulk of the Red Force. But three days later we crossed the remains of a small camp, which suggested a group was hunting us out and making a determined go of it. Worse still, from the debris and the ashes of the fire there were real horsemen, not conscript townboys. The only sunny side was that professionals might prefer to hunt us down by themselves, and not send a rider to drag in more forces and have to split the spoils, meagre as they were. If we could deal with them, we might gain several days' grace. They found us the following day, and maintained a steady watchful distance, perhaps hoping we would lead them to a larger force, or betray some store of food and weapons, or secret trail. Like I say, disciplined, professional. They kept pace, and now we could see that they outnumbered us two to one. An opportunity to evade them presented itself, when our lead rider called back a defile leading down into a wooded valley. Larch and birch were crowded by pines, the low branches making riding difficult and shortening sight lines. If our pursuers wanted to keep us in sight, they would have to come down and follow. If they stayed above, we could lose them any number of ways. The soft green dimness seemed a sanctuary. At first, instead of the barren wind of the grasslands, all was resin-scented and rustling. Going down into the valley was like being submerged in a green sea. At our first opportunity, I set up the ambush, a break in the trees with tall grass and a couple of fallen logs to take cover behind. We watched the trail cautiously, our horses well away. Noon sun cast deep shadows. Insects churred in the air. First one rider, then another came out along the trail we left. High-peaked Bujonovka hats over bearded, weathered faces. Red stars clearly visible on the clothing. Three men were into the little clearing before a fourth looked around suspiciously. Two more rode past him, and I saw he was about to speak just as I was able to fire on the horses of the final pair and bring them down. Whereupon, all hell let loose. Five repeaters put down more lead than the Red's bolt-action carbines could have managed, even in a fair fight. The suddenness of the fusillade and the high-pitched war-whoops of our devil-men panicked the horses and caused further havoc. Soon, all we could hear was gasps and distress from men and horses. I would have lain there, waiting for the wounded to die, rather than risk going to inspect them. But I heard another noise suddenly, boots hammering away, and the swish of tree branches. 
I called to Kavlogin, who rediscovered his nerve, after the odds were now in our favour, and we leapt off like a pair of wolves, sabres in one hand, rifles at the trail. Our man was bareheaded, clutching his arm, and hurrying away, setting quite a pace. He moved nimbly despite the injury, and it took several hundred yards for us to track him down. Behind us, I could hear our men finishing off the survivors without me. The fugitive had found another clearing, and made the mistake of diving into an obvious hole in a low mound or hillock, perhaps just witless with fear, or maybe hoping we would pass by. There was no other trail in the long grass. However, while he was now trapped, it did leave us the predicament of how to get him out. Kavlogan showed me the broadside of his nose as he waited for me to take the initiative. And, after watching the hole in the hill for a few moments, I decided going in was too dangerous for my tastes. I called out to our men, and after an abominably long time they emerged from the trees behind us, walking the captured horses and grinning. I explained the situation to them, and they were all for diving in after the injured man like terriers after rats. However, I had an alternative. A search of the red saddlebags revealed some grenades, and two of us made ready. One, then two bombs were thrown down the tunnel, and after some scuffling sounds the man burst out, wild-eyed. A double concussion behind knocked him off balance, and before he could bring his bayonet up, I stepped in two strides and cleaved his collarbone with a slash. Then Kavlogin ran him through the guts. I stuck him in the throat for good measure when he was down. It was a great relief. My first thought was to account for all our pursuers, and conceal our trail as best we could. I had thoughts of lying low for a few days, capitalising on our captured supplies and the horseflesh, and taking a break from this war in the greenest spot I'd seen in months. But Kavlogin, like the rodent he was, followed his nose and ducked inside the hill where the man had hidden, emerging afterwards and calling for light. Surprised to find old wax nose so animated, I ducked inside and pulled a candle stub and matches from my pockets. There was just enough room in the tunnel for us to examine what he had found by the candlelight, if we didn't plan on settling in for the afternoon. What we saw was that, beneath the turf, the walls of the tunnel were lined with the long, rotted remains of wooden walls, but the tunnel itself was blocked by a stone wall, or possibly a door. It was inscribed with carved writing in the Mongol style, top to bottom, but the blast of the grenades had cracked the slab, revealing an open space behind, although the gap was too thin to permit light to intrude. I pushed Kovlogin back out, and called the more senior horseman in. His eyes went wide on seeing the slab, and the inscription. He began muttering a clicking prayer to himself, and gurgling, then called out to his fellows, who crowded me out. I couldn't understand one word of what they were saying, but it seemed very important. I stood in the cool sunlight, drank water, and ate some rations. The clearing was quite pleasant, in spite of the mound, shielded from the wind by the valley and the trees. I thought I could hear a stream nearby. The senior rider came out, smiling ferociously, and clapped me on the arm. Writing says his tomb of great calm below, he informed us. I considered our options. Ride back now, and we risked running into more patrols, 
wait, and we stood a better chance. The Reds might move off. Plus, in the event that this was some fabulous treasure tomb, I'd rather take my share up front than trust it to Von Ungern. The madman was just as likely to spend it on bribing the bogged Khan to make him a prince of Mongolia. Safer to make a private withdrawal, under the guise of getting evidence we had done our job. Then, bid a fond and speedy farewell. My official plan, which was to gather evidence and head back to HQ, I explained with some difficulty, and many grand embellishments to our devilmen. They never trusted me, but ultimately the Baron had told them to follow my orders, and after all I had led them to the tomb. So they agreed to make camp properly, and to begin manually excavating the door. Nothing would persuade them to violate the site further with explosives. As night fell, I could feel Kavlogin's venal eyes straying to the tomb distractedly. Had he overheard the Baron say there was treasure within? It would not be a restful few days with that backstabber around. I had to think on. Part 4 The next two days were frankly idyllic. With the proper comportment of an officer, I refused to help dig. Instead, I rolled in the soft green of the trees, as one wakes lazily in the bed of an honest woman. There would no doubt be trouble, but not immediately. Not before breakfast. Insects spun, sun diffused, small game scurried. We ate the small game. I tried to plot our position more accurately, with no success. I thought about home, Lancashire, and where I'd buy my house with the loot. Maybe Hest Bank overlooking the sea, which I could swear never to cross again. Maybe I could train up as a doctor, nice family doctor. I could stroke the fevered brow and hand out sugar pills with the best of Harley Street. All our men dug into the mound with great care and furious intensity. One older, one youngest, two, two others. I cannot remember their faces now. The older horse-soldier had a mole on his lip, partly hidden by his beard. The youngest had very pale brown eyes, and on one or two occasions I swear he nearly smiled. He sniffed a lot. In fact, now I note it down, they all sniffed and sneezed as they dug. Was there something in the air? Or something in the foul air arising from the tomb? Well, they dug, and they served their master, the baron. Much good it did them. They used bayonets and tools from the baggage of the Reds. Kavlogin made tea, and wandered off, supposedly standing guard. He chased game badly, and caught nothing. Who knows what he really did? Probably laying up supplies to run off. I know I was. He seemed troubled, certainly. Furtive. Maybe his peasant soul picked up on something. Or perhaps he just revolted at the thought of disturbing the sleep of a king— even a dead one, because our devil riders became increasingly convinced that this was a high tomb of great significance. When they took their infrequent breaks to drink water, they would whisper repeating stanzas of prayer or incantation. I could not understand the language, but their stances betrayed concern and reverence. On the third day, with delighted cries— they removed enough soil to be able to prise one half of the ceiling stone away and carry it delicately away and place it on the hillside. It was incredibly old, 
and in the light seemed to have a soft greenish tinge to it. The letters ran Mongol fashion, but even with my limited knowledge I could see this was far stranger and far older. The letters leaned drunkenly, melting like warm wax, hieroglyphs or maybe illuminated letters like a medieval parchment were interspersed among the regular script. A pendulous star, an eye, a different star, barbed, a sort of bird's nest of lines repeated several times. I had no interest in archaeology, but the sheer antiquity and strangeness was arresting. Kavlogin and I went back into the tunnel and tried to peer inside. Candle stubs were retrieved from our packs, and with great care we lit them. It was impossible to see beyond a short stretch of tunnel, stone-flagged and stone-roofed. There was certainly something back there. I would have made Kavlogin scout himself, but I did not trust him to report what he found. Nor could I understand enough of our troopers' language for them to be of any use. So I resolved to squeeze through myself, with infinite care and by holding one arm over my head like a swimmer caught mid-stroke. I was able to pass through, shirtless, and accepted a light. Groping forward almost on all fours, it took no time before I encountered a strange obstacle. After a time, I realized that it was a sort of curtain made of beads strung on silver wire. Holding them close, they glittered in the flamelight, tarnished silver, amber, and some dark stone. I pocketed a handful where wires had broken, but as I did so I became aware of the much larger chamber beyond, and pressed into it. Words cannot describe the scene adequately, but words are all I have. It was in some sense slightly squalid, low-ceilinged, I could not quite stand up straight. The solid stone walls did not keep out all the moisture— in fact, I could see at least one dark puddle of liquid on the floor. Yet, at the same time, it was undoubtedly magnificent, and undoubtedly a tomb. A kind of boat-like sarcophagus was at the centre, possibly gold-plated, on a wooden frame. Unquestionably ancient, there was the strangest odour in the air. It smelled of swamps and horsehide, and frankincense and myrrh, as if the burial was in a jackal's mouth on a sacrificial altar. A scurf of offering bowls and candle holders almost piled up against it, the food or incense along gone. Evidently these were made of fine bone china, and brass, pewter and ivory, in all different styles from around the world. The more arresting thing, though, was that beyond the offerings, like mourners at a funeral, were gods— Statues and icons, arranged pointing towards the dead Khan, like the conquered slaves of a Roman general. Like the offering bowls, these were all of great workmanship and in rich materials. A gem-studded crucifix, a golden Buddha, ivory multi-limbed gods from India. There were even some that I did not recognize. I saw a crouched thing with the wings of a bat, and a scowling face with worms coming out of it, evidence that the Khan could grind down cults and religions to beyond the reach of history or memory when he chose to. I could not take it all in at a glance, but did have the presence of mind to sweep up some of the more portable pieces into my trouser pocket, 
wrapped in a handkerchief. Any one of these pieces, if sold carefully, might go for thousands. But gems, I thought to myself, were the real treasure, not gold, which would weigh me down. A few nice fat pigeon-egg-sized diamonds, perhaps. There were other treasures, to be sure. Silk bags, lacy with old age. Wooden boxes warped by the damp. Precious reliquaries, overstuffed with coins of kings and emperors, all defaced so their royal visages did not dare to be shown. Pearls glistened, amber shone, marble tablets with hieroglyphics were scattered heedlessly, alongside crumbling scrolls and prayer bowls, green with verdigris. Yes, the smart thing to do would be to do a proper inventory. And then what? I sat down to think, cross-legged. I had some minutes of candle yet. How to get rid of Kavlogin and my escort? An idea struck me. But as it did, I realized that the candle flame was guttering. Air was blowing across it, and not from me. A draft, then. Was there some larger treasure room beyond this? Was this even the Khan himself? What if this was merely a concubine's antechamber, and some larger, more precious hoard was beyond? I started up and navigated as best I could to the rear of the tomb, trying not to trample heathen gods underfoot like an avenging archangel. To no look, unfortunately, as some icon of the Indus jabbed me in the shin, making me cry out. Behind me, I heard Kovlogan feign interest in my plight, but I ignored him as I had seen something strange behind the sarcophagus. Three fluted tubes emerged from the burr soil, like upended brass drainpipes, Yet they were painted with long-faded symbols and writing. Utterly at odds with the other man-made objects in the rest of the room, they seemed strangely functional. Their open mouths did not quite meet the ceiling, but were too close for me to see in. They had no means to break them open. A soft, slightly humid air exhaled from all three. It smelled strangely of thunderstorms and the sea. There was no sound. In fact, as I reflected, it occurred to me that they might be some sort of insect hive, and the last thing I wanted was a swarm of ants or of flies to issue forth. My candle would not last long enough, and was not bright enough to make a proper assay of the treasure, so I moved to extract myself. Leaving was harder to do than entering, with no one to push my legs, but I managed it with some nervous gasps. I made a face when I got out and demanded tea to cover my composition of a good lie. It is a tomb, all right, but I cannot be sure it is the great Khan, I said at length. It is the great Khan below, said our eldest trooper, with feeling. I cannot be certain yet. Our baron will insist we bring proof of something that could only be of the Khan, not some ancient other tomb. It must be the Khan, do you see? Those are our orders. I thought a while. What would mark out the great Khan, above all others? This question flattered the knowledge of our troopers, and they descended into intense discussion, with many glances at us two Europeans. They gurgled and clicked back and forth like a blocked sink. Kavlogan gave me the side of his nose, feigning indifference, and fussing with the pots and pans, until finally the elder approached me even venturing a salute. The great calm below will have a knife. We will recognize it if you show it to us, he said, almost reluctantly, 
clearly divulging some secret myth. Very well, I said. Then I must return to the chamber with better lights, and make a respectful search for this dagger. But, I said, with a theatrical flourish towards the sun, I will need better light. We must get lights, yes? This provoked a further parliament of our four men, which, being more mundane, I could slightly follow. It seemed our youngest lad had the bright idea to hunt up some fat game, render the grease from their organs, and make rushlights from ration tins. A capital plan from a born sapper, I thought, and congratulated him. Go, I said, and find what you can. Make fast now, chop-chop, use your rifles if you must. And off they ran to all points of the compass. Kvlogin appeared at my elbow. So, what is in there? he asked. Gold, I answered. Solid gold, big as soup plates. And I led him back into the approach tunnel, whereupon, with some squeezing and effort, I pried free and passed to him four slabs of gold plate, weighing several pounds apiece. These he wrapped in horse blankets, and concealed under two of our ponies' saddles on a sort of harness. Not mine, I said. He has gone slightly lame, and will be no good to ride. Unfortunately, Kvlogin was too lazy to spot this transparent falsehood. Part 5 Our men were gone until late, having endeavoured to take game using improvised spears, rather than risk the sound of gunfire carrying to our enemies. Although there was no time to render out the fat from the clutch of creatures and make the lamps before sundown. But we ate well enough of the stew. Kvlogin, with transparent cunning, broke out a bottle of pepper vodka and passed it around, congratulating us on fulfilling our mission. I made it look like I was drinking, and spilled a great deal into my beard. A trick of my father's, or so my mother told me. The fire crackled, and fatigue overwhelmed us, as exertion on the trail often induces. Every man clustered in close to the small pile of embers for warmth, against the chill. Nothing moved. Time passed. An inky darkness descended. I lay in the black and listened. The wind seemed to whistle very faintly in the distance, and there were mysterious cracking and rustling noises, as there often are. I don't know if he possessed some hidden reserve of stealth, or if I merely nodded off, but I blinked awake and saw that Kvlogin was missing from the circle. I lay awake then, trying to estimate the time. I wanted to give him a good head start, so I tried to think about the chamber and what I already knew. Heaps of idols, bags of gemstones and coins. It was not so grand as perhaps I expected, smaller by size even if heaped with loot. I half expected a temple hidden in some nap of the earth, not a barrow underground. Yet it still had treasure enough for me. I roused as if to urinate. Then, blundering noisily, I cried out in alarm. The sergeant has gone. Deserter. He would inform the Reds. We must find him. I sent my sleepy men out into the forest. I ordered them to take horses and to track as best they could and bring of Logan back alive. I would remain here to guard the camp in case he returned. Teeth flashed mirthlessly. Guns were loaded and swords wetted. Then all were gone, save myself, and once alone, 
I went soundly to sleep, knowing full well that Kavlogin would be making at top speed, blundering about, no doubt, and give me at least until morning, possibly into the next day. Then I could take my pick of the loot and be off. Either I'd make it away clean, or if I ran into anyone, I could still claim to be looking for the fugitive. I was obviously wrong, as you'd expect. I woke to find Kavlogin waving a knife in my face. Sleepily, I wondered if it was the Great Khan's blade, but it was just some pig-iron stick had probably turned out in Sheffield. I could imagine it plunging into my guts, and kept quite still. "'You have to help me! Get it off me!' he warbled. I blinked, like I imagined an officer would blink. So he showed me his arm, his bare forearm. "'Get what off you?' "'You're hysterical,' I warned him, with a supercilious air. "'It killed him! Now it's on me!' he shrieked. Again, I could not see what on earth he was talking about. "'The shadow falls! The shadow has teeth! It bites!' The man was raving, so I looked past him to see if any of my troopers had come back, or was approaching. In fact, I saw one laid out flat on the ground. A flat plate of gold had fallen beside him, Blood pooled around him. "'What have you done, you blackguard? You're mad!' I said with forced outrage. Kavlogin exclaimed briefly, and gripped my arm with fingers as tight as a vice with panic. I stumbled closer to the fire, catching a glimpse of our fallen man, his face twisted with fear, blood running down. Yet another dead man, but something seemed unusual for all that. But I couldn't put my finger on it, being swung around by a lunatic. "'Look here, by the fire,' he insisted, and used his foot to kick more fuel onto the coals. Sparks shot up into the pre-dawn darkness, and finally hid it me in the blaze of light. The shadow on his bare arm had not moved. Something like the ghost of a hand or paw, small-fingered. It was as if it were painted on. It was so simple, yet so incomprehensible.' I did what any red-blooded Englishman does when confronted with the truly mysterious and incomprehensible. I punched him. Kavlogin reeled backwards from my rather sloppy it, wailing like a goose. His arm waved. The shadow stayed put, just hanging in mid-air. As if left behind in a moment of inattention, part of Kavlogin seemed to have been left behind with it. He stared stupidly down at the gap in his flesh. For a moment, nothing happened. Kavlogin probably screamed, but I was transfixed by the sight of a chunk of Kavlogin staying put in the air. Then very slowly, like cigarette smoke, it faded and dispersed like mist on a bright morning. Kavlogin kept screaming, and blood very slowly welled out of the missing chunk in his arm. We stood still far longer than hindsight would like. Then we bolted in unison for the only cover nearby, the tunnel. Fighting over each other, Kavlogin's blood on his hands and in my hair, into the sudden sanctuary of a grave. We waited, breathing like stampeded sheep. Kavlogin muttered, and I heard him emptying a bag noisily, a red flickering, and I saw he had grabbed one of our lanterns, placed it on a Byzantine silver chest, and lit it. Gemstones and gold blazed, although no lust for it was on us at that moment. "'What happened?' I said. "'We have awoken the night,' 
Kavlogin whimpered. He held his cruelly damaged arm like a broken wing. He was so pathetic I even felt sorry for him, and moved to look closer. Through the dirty shirt he had clamped on the injury, I could see blood welling through like blotted ink. It was not bleeding so bad, considering the size of the wound. The form of a small animalistic paw could clearly be seen. It was almost as if it had been carved out of him like he were a block of clay, not warm flesh and bone, like a spoonful of butter. I doubled back, he continued, as if we were co-conspirators. I wanted to check the tomb for richer treasure. I knew you would try to swindle me, he ended peevishly, hurt by my subterfuge. I didn't get in here. I was grabbed by one of the troopers in ambush, and they were dragging me towards the fire. That's when we saw him. He shuddered. I must have been very sound asleep. So much for my plan. We heard nothing. We only saw them. Three shadows. One tall and thin, one on all fours like a wolf, one small like a child. They danced in the firelight, and we tried to see what cast them. But nothing cast the shadows. They were just there. The low shadow slid across the floor and seemed to sniff my leg. Kavlogin stirred straight ahead as he told the tale. The tall shadow and the child's shadow moved across the guard. I saw their hands on him, darting like spiders, grey as smoke. A poetic streak in him, I thought stupidly. Nothing happened until he turned to speak to me. Then, he shuddered, he turned, but the shadowed parts didn't. They stayed perfectly still. And when he turned, he came apart in their hands, torn to pieces. Again, the sergeant's wide cow-eyes turned imploringly to me. What have we woken? He gestured hopelessly with the knife at the tomb around us. I paused here. No doubt something was wrong. But if there's one thing I have learned, it's that in a crisis you must keep your head, no matter how mad the world becomes. I had navigated the treacherous waters of the Russian Revolution. Whatever deviltry this was, I just had to stay calm. If only because Kavlogin still had that knife. So I gestured to him, and bound his wound up tighter, and made encouraging noises until the tension fell away from him, and he slumped in defeat against a chest, still armed. Adrenaline leaked from him, but he did not quite close his eyes. Periodically they would dart around, vigilantly, madly. I took stock. We had light. A steady golden light. I could see no threat at this moment. So I looked around. Treasure. Treasure. The great coffin. Then, with great forced nonchalance, I began searching about me. Like a man looking for his glasses, I picked things up and discarded them idly, not seizing anything until Kavlogin stopped staring. I wanted him to get accustomed to me moving around, before I searched in earnest. I had half a torn shirt from the bandaging, and fashioned that into a bindle. I filled it with the most portable treasures I could see, jewellery and loose stones. I found a gold crucifix, and handed it to Kavlogin casually, as one would pass a newspaper one had finished with. He was pathetically grateful— and clasped it to his chest with childish fervour. But I was only partly interested in loot. I did not know what misfortune waited outside and might come for us, but the thought occurred to me that whatever sort of predatory thing had attacked my companion, my best bet was to ensure it fell upon him, 
while I made away. To that end, I would need to put a crimp in his ability to keep up with me. I needed a knife, and I knew from our men that the tomb of the Khan would have a knife, or at the very least surely there would be a sabre. Kovlorgin began whining a prayer, no doubt to comfort himself, as I completed my first circuit. I glanced behind the coffin, and saw again those three odd-looking tubes. Three tubes! Hadn't the sergeant said there were three shadows? Could shadows live in a pipe, in a tunnel underground? I suppose it was as good a place for living shadows as any. I wondered if they were holding back because of our lamp. But then hadn't I been told that they attacked in the light from the fire? Put that out of my mind. Escape first. Escape always. Where are you? said Kavlogin plaintively. I cannot see you. I am behind the sarcophagus, sergeant. I am looking for a way out, I said, almost honestly. But I cannot see you, he repeated. There was nothing back here, so I rounded the far side and stopped dead. Kavlogin had not moved in the circle of golden radiance, propped up against the twinkling treasure chest. But there was a hand across his eyes, as if he were playing hide-and-seek, although it was not a hand, it was the shadow of a hand, with long, angular fingers. I froze. Kavlogin too seemed frozen. "'Don't move,' I cautioned. "'A shadow is over your eyes. It may hurt you if you move.' The man whimpered, but held his position strictly. "'What to do?' I peered every way, looking for a shadow among the shadows. I'd hoped to wait it out until morning— but at least one of the things had returned to its lure. "'I want you to write to my wife,' Kavlogin said, and I immediately lost interest, some sort of rambling apology for his sins, which were numerous and once or twice contradictory. The poor fool even raved about the baron's obsessions, spheres within spheres like eyes within holes, how he had hoped to control the forces of the dole and would now be taken by them. He kept mangling some repeated phrase in the clicking, gurgling tongue, like a paternoster. But even distracted, I could tell he was misremembering it from the interrogation at the burned temple. It should have been, Yogsathoth is the gate. Yogsathoth is the key in the gate. Past, present, future are all one to Yogsathoth. Although who Yogsathoth was and why he'd look out for Mikhail Kavlogin was still a mystery. However... Only the language part of my mind heard his confession. The savage, animal desire to be free of this hole was rising in me. I slid around the sarcophagus with my back to it. I might have no way to stop the shadows, but I would not go like Kavlogan. I would see my fate approaching, and if it had a face, I would laugh in it. Not that a shadow has a face. I giggled out loud. "'Why are you laughing?' he whined. You must tell my wife this. You can send a letter to the bakers near Kaluskaya Square. Either she will pick it up, or my mother will. Just do not put my name on it, or the Reds will find out. Unless you can say I join the Reds. He grinned with low cunning. Yes, you must do that. He turned towards me as he smiled. He seemed to realise his mistake in that last second. The top half of his face came away as the shadow stayed perfectly still, holding on to it, eyes, part of his forehead, torn away, and as he spasmed with pain, 
as he screamed his throat to ruin, it was obvious that the shadows had also been laying across other parts of him. Blood filled the air like a satisfied exhalation, and he was surrounded by small wisps of grey smoke as his flesh disintegrated. Not the worst death I've seen, but enough to make me freeze for those few deadly seconds. By the time my wits returned, I couldn't see where the shadows were. Could I make a dash for it? Were they predatory, and would pounce if I ran? Were they sated with flesh and blood after killing the two men just now? I had no idea. I shifted nervously on my pile of loot, and small avalanches, fortune streamed down. Was it better to run and chance it? No, that was panic rising in me. Better to stay calm. Always better to stay calm, I told myself. Maybe the noise had drawn them. Yes, that could be it. I should stay quiet. Stay still. Dawn soon, anyway. My chance, at least. My hope, at least. But if you've ever waited for death, as I have before, then you will know it is not easy. It is awfully hard to stay the course and not waver. Thoughts rise. Hopes, fears battle. You talk to yourself, if you aren't careful. Swear and curse— which is why I fetched out my notebook and began writing, so I could focus my mind and not succumb to the fear, writing slowly and carefully, barely moving. I did not think about a stealthy dark shade sliding across the coffin behind my head to snuff out my sight and my life like an old man snubbing a candle, or some animal paw drape across my lap like a faithful hound, only to rend me in pieces. I have been writing for hours. I feel like I have nothing left to say. My name is Mortimer John Pucklesley, Private 287091, 2nd Regiment, 7th Battalion, Durham Light Infantry. You can find my mother by looking in the Lancashire Police Gazette, but she will neither reward nor believe you if you tell her how I ended. I write these lines in case some future horse soldier finds them. I order you to run as fast as you can. Leave the shadows to the grave, and the treasure to the great Khan, in his long sleep. My candle is fading. My left hand is shaking, the way it does when I know that I will die.